0: In our previous episode, we talked about what I consider to be the heart of Fahrenheit 451, and this is wonder. It is so important that it marks the difference between Clarisse, full of life, and Mildred, who has practically checked out, because she doesn't have anything to really live for, Mildred fills the hours with mindless distractions and entertainment. This works the other way too, there is a way in which mindless entertainment and distraction can simply kill and destroy our capacity for wonder. Think of the words themselves, distraction and entertainment. We can do an etymological analysis of these words, which means looking at the historical origin and the development of a word. This is a very useful tool in philosophy. It shows us what people were thinking originally when they made certain words. What were they trying to name? It is a cool way of discovering layers of meaning that are hidden in plain view. Sometimes the results are truly surprising. In the case of distraction and entertainment, the meanings we discover are kind of scary. To distract means to pull in different directions. That is the word traction there, which means pull, like in tractor, and this, which means away. When distracted, we are being pulled away from something. Entertainment, etymologically, means to be held between. Enter comes from the Latin inter, in between. Entertainment here means to be held, like, for example, in containment. When we are entertained, when we are distracted, we are held between things pulled away, we are not masters of our own attention. Even if we understand, say, the value of reading a good book, it has become for us so difficult to do this, when we can instead play one more level, binge watch another episode, or check to see if we got any more likes in the past five minutes. Even reading a fun book takes a certain amount of mental stamina, to be sure. If we don't exercise, as in train, The habit of focusing our attention during long periods of time. It's very easy to lose that training. And then we become unable to sustain the long burn required to read a substantial book. To be clear, I'm not talking about other people, I'm talking about myself. Just a few weeks ago I decided to force myself to read short science fiction stories as a way to get back into reading books, and I am a professional philosopher. So the temptation to be distracted is strong for anyone these days. Again, an image from fire making can help, which of course is very appropriate. Think about preparing a good fire in a fireplace, have you ever done it? You place two or three heavy logs, solid wood. It takes some effort to ignite them though, you need some kindling and something in between like pine cones, but when the heavy wood lights up at last, it can burn beautifully For hours, think if you only had kindling. Every minute you would have to throw some more. It lasts for a few seconds at most, gives very little heat, and leaves everything covered in ashes. To a great extent, our attention has become like this. We need kindling, a twist, a surprise, some random noise, a dopamine kick every 15 seconds by TikTok standards. Can our minds sustain? The longer effort required to get into a book. This is what happened to the people of Fahrenheit 451, we learn. They lost this ability. They can stomach only popcorn. They can burn only kindling. How did they get there? Well, it's time to find out. So, welcome to Philosophy Philosophy Universe, Universe. a podcast about science fiction, fantasy, and philosophy. I'm Alfredo, and this is episode 4, distracted to death, the world of Fahrenheit 451. In our previous episode, we talked about Clarice and Mildred. Clarice, of course, personifies the unabated and ashamed wonder that we identify with a pure, innocent, youthful person. No posing, no pretending to know better, no shame in asking questions, and showing the light at every new thing, or even at very old things like the sun and the skies. People like Clarice, of course, are rare in Montag's world. They are considered the deviants, and the government keeps files on them. Much more common is her antithesis, Mildred, a woman that lives in a constant state of flying from herself, avoiding any thought. How did things come to be like this, an entire society unable to focus on one single thought? Here we meet Captain Vitti, Montag's boss. Vitti is in the know, and he wants Montag to have this knowledge too, in the hope that he may become a trusted second-in-command, perhaps. Vitti is aware of the crisis Montag is going through, and comes to visit him at home. He has a heart-to-heart with him. He tells him how things became what they are. It is not a perfectly organized account, so we must parse through it a bit. There are basically three elements that Bradbury brings up in Beatty's monologue. These, you could say, are things that Bradbury diagnoses as problematic, extend them into the future, and this is what the future could bring. The first thing that Beatty notes is that things have been speeding up, getting faster and faster. That's, of course, a good thing, isn't it? No need to wait unnecessarily for things, more speed means more efficiency. Bradbury, 70 years ago, was talking of things like replacing buttons with zippers, cars driving people faster than ever before, and so on. But of course that's nothing compared to how fast we live nowadays. We can track people in real time, contact them instantly, take a picture and make it available to the whole world in milliseconds. No need to wait in line when I can order everything online. So why would speed be a bad thing? The problem, I think, is that as things become available immediately, we lose our capacity to wait. And good things not only come to those who wait, they sometimes require waiting, patience, an investment in time. Vitti tells Montag, Why would you waste time reading the entire works of Shakespeare when you can have it all in digest form and show your neighbors how much you know, how cultured you are? without spending more than a few minutes of your life. Of course, that is missing the whole point. You don't read Shakespeare or watch his plays to show off, it's the experience that makes you hopefully a better person. But what if we lost the capacity for such a task? What if watching actors recite during 3 hours in Old English has become too much and we only have the attention span left for a 15 second video? We often speak of the speed of thought, but the truth is real thoughts need time, a lot of time. What Bradbury is saying is, we have narrowed our world bit by bit. Our world cannot contain anything longer than a few seconds of enjoyment. It cannot fit anything that requires some commitment, the long view, study, dedication, faith in an author. The people in Beatty's world can only stomach comics and magazines. Enjoying books is now beyond their reach. And they have done it to themselves by consistently choosing what's immediately gratifying over what needs time and dedication. Maybe you have heard of a 1979 science fiction movie called Stalker. It was directed by the famed Russian director Andrei Tarkovsky. It is, in my opinion, a pretty great movie. Rated as one of the greatest in history in many important rankings. It is also a very slow movie. Each shot takes on average longer than one minute. If you compare this to today's Hollywood movies, on average, each shot is between 4 and 5 seconds. The beginning scene itself was many minutes long and basically showed the main character, the stalker, who is like a guide in a very dangerous region, getting out of bed getting dressed, preparing breakfast, brushing out his teeth, if I remember correctly. The story, Alan is looking at the special features, I'm afraid, is that the Soviet State Committee for Cinematography told Tarkovsky that the film was too slow, that it needed to be more dynamic. So what does he do? He makes the beginning scene longer. He tells them that the film needs to be slower and duller at the start, so that the viewers who walk into the wrong theater have time to leave before the main action starts. I'm going to be honest, I did fast forward through the beginning. Then of course I went all the way back because I was afraid that maybe I had missed something important. And no, it's just the guy getting out of bed and making breakfast, I think he even brushes his teeth, and so fast forward through it if you want. But I still love the image. Rather than the author, having to put two explosions in the first scene to hook your attention, you have to put your faith in the author, and if you commit to that, then you get to experience something especially good and different. Of course, that runs against the commercial interests of any publishing enterprise. The producers that put the money in Tarkovsky's hands don't want spectators to walk away from the theater. They probably didn't care if 20 years later the movie received fantastic praise. They want their investment's worth. It's natural. This, of course, creates a tension that Bradbury identifies in his novel. The majority of the public, according to Beatty, does not care about good but difficult things. What they want is to be entertained, not to be challenged. And the producers and publishers have to respond to these wishes and discourage any element that may turn their potential public away. So, there is a sort of vicious cycle here, if we are to believe BT. The public wants quick and entertaining, and the producers give them what they want. So the public's attention span becomes even thinner, and the producers need to adapt by giving them something even quicker, more eye-popping, less and less thoughtful and brainy, ever more and more. This is how BT describes it, Speed up the film, Montag, quick, click. Pick, look, eye, flick. Bitty really sounds like he's describing social media. Digest, digest, digest. Politics, one column, two sentences, a headline. The centrifuge flings off all unnecessary time-wasting thought. But is Bitty right? If this is so, then we're kind of doomed to become a sort of brainless civilization, looking only at the colors or the pretty explosions. Instead of becoming more capable of posing reflecting, and engaging in deep thought, the future is, ooh, look, shiny, boom. And that seems a bit worrisome to me. Now, we need to evaluate whether Bradbury is really up to something here. There are, of course, indicators that there is some speeding going on. A colleague of mine who teaches marketing told me she had to teach her students how to grab the attention of the public in under a second. She was complaining that it used to be under two and a half, but now, one second was all they had. That is scary. On the other hand, maybe this is like the tide. Things speed up following Bit's analysis, and then people realize that they are missing something. Then things slow down again and engage people's full attention. I'm just speculating here and using a lot of what is called anecdotal evidence, so you be the judges. But I think that while there is a speeding up a shortening of our attention span that can be very negative, it's not the whole story. Think of how popular the Lord of the Rings movies were when they came out in theaters. They were three hours long, they have even a break in between, and people flocked to them. On the other hand, if you listen to literary agents, they will tell you that they need a hook in the first three pages, in the first paragraph even, and they won't even look at your book if it doesn't have one. So maybe they would take The Hobbit, but they reject Lord of the Rings. Again, think of credits in TV shows in the early 2000s, they got shortened to a 2 second title sequence and now we are back to full blown enormously creative titles, with of course the chance to skip them in streaming services, so maybe my example doesn't count. Anyway, also listen to a couple minutes of dialogue in an old movie like Citizen Kane for example, the dialogue is crazy fast, really difficult to follow, and the movie is from the 40s. My point is that maybe BD has a point, and there is a danger, but maybe humanity is not as shallow as we think it is. I used the example of the tides earlier, and I think that also that happens with uh, publishing trends. So if you look, for example, at what is called the golden age of science fiction, or the very early 20th century, there's a lot of cheap writing done there. I think that you can also make the case that the eighties is a great time with very creative science fiction, fantasy, adventure, and the 90s was followed just by an onslaught of really bad sequels to many of those classics. Uh, Perhaps the same is what is happening right now. And, uh, well, maybe we just need to wait until the trend subsides. So, what are we to do? Can we somehow guarantee that publications are going to become better? And by this I mean books, movies, TV shows, even video games. Maybe we just need to do nothing. At this point in history, there's so much good stuff that we can find to read, to watch, even to play, that if I choose to use my time on mediocre ones, I am the only one to blame. So what do we do? Well, let's just focus on the good stuff and let the producer catch up. And speaking about speeding up, I realized that I will not have time to finish with BT's points in this podcast. Uh, so let me finish with a few thoughts. First, it's not that we have to always go against the current or against the grain to experience good and substantial things. It's more a matter of developing a taste for them. So what is first difficult, it usually becomes more easy and enjoyable as we continue to engage in this activity. Secondly, it doesn't always need to be one or the other. Either it's entertaining or it's good for me. Think about how a very good meal can also be a very delightful one if it's properly prepared. Of course, our parents always tell us, don't eat your snacks now because you're not gonna be able to have dinner later. And I don't think they ever tell us, don't have dinner now because you're not going to be able to eat your snacks later. So clearly there is a temptation to what is a little bit lighter. And I think that we need both. We need both the entertainment and the fun, and the good and substantial. But it's easier for us to go for the first ones, and sometimes we can neglect the second. My next point is that this is one of the cool things about science fiction. Good science fiction, of course, can be both very entertaining, really grabs your attention, it fills you with wonder, and at the same time can be substantial filled with content and thought and important things to think about, of course. We will continue with Vita's speech on our next episode of Philosophy Philosophy Universe. Universe. This is your host, Alfredo. Thank you for listening. If you want to read some of that early science fiction and see what it looks like, you can do probably no better than going to the Gutenberg project that is gutenberg.org will find both entertainment and really good books that have not been published maybe a century or so so here's a little shout out to the guys at gutenberg.org so keep it going guys